This is KXSF 102.5 FM, streaming worldwide at www.kxsf.fm. And you're tuned in to Spark with Kelly Marlowe. Informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. Today I'm talking with Christina Perello, an author, food expert, and Emmy Award television personality of Christina Cooks. At age 26, she cured herself from cancer by changing her diet dramatically. We will be talking about how to eat for longevity, in particular, tying to the macrobiotic diet. Thank you for joining me on Spark today, Christina. Very welcome. My pleasure. How do you define a macrobiotic diet? Well, if you're looking at it from just the food aspect, you can either go esoteric and Eastern mystical, or you can look at sort of the reality of it, which is that a macrobiotic diet is simply whole, unprocessed food cooked in accordance with your health condition, you know, plant-based usually, although while most people who eat a macrobiotic diet are vegans, some are not. And we, as my teacher used to say, we take the sentimentality out of food and use food as it's appropriate to either maintain, regain, or restore health. So there's a, there's a lot of interpretations to the macrobiotic diet, actually, although most of us, I'd say 90%, are entirely plant-based. Before we jump into what the diet looks like, can you tell us how you started on a macrobiotic diet? So when I was 14, I decided to become a vegan because my father was a butcher, and I thought, why not? That's what you do at 14 is you torture your father. But I was a junk food vegetarian, you know, diet Dr. Pepper and Snicker bars. Then when I left home at 18, I was a pastry chef and living the chef life and not taking care of myself and living basically on sugar. And so at 26, I was diagnosed with uh, uh, what would be considered stage four of AML, which is a form of leukemia. I decided that I didn't want to lose my hair and I didn't want to be sick all the time and I couldn't believe that I would die at 26. And I met the man who became my husband, Robert Perello, and he said, you should try a macrobiotic diet. First thing that changes is your blood quality. And he was so passionate about macrobiotics that I thought, well, I don't really have anything to lose. I'm out of here in six months, so I'll give it a go. And in two months, I was in remission, and in 14 months, I was cancer-free. I mean, I had a lot of ups and downs in the first nine months, but after that, it was kind of up smoother sailing, and I became uh, cancer-free, and that was 36 years ago. So I'm a pretty big proponent of the impact of food on wellness. That's amazing. Also, it sounds like it really healed you pretty quickly. Yeah, you know, the joke in macrobiotics is the body heals quickly, three to five years. And so when my cancer was sort of gone, I I remember studying with Michio Kushi and him saying, okay, now the real healing starts. And I was like, wait, what? He said, now your organs have to heal and this has to heal. And, you know, it was a good three-year process before I would say that I was uh, in the health that I wanted to be in. I had lots of ups and downs, although the cancer never came back. I struggled with anemia. I struggled with skin things and, and digestive things, and um, it took a good three years of changing my lifestyle and my diet to, to feel the way I would say I feel now. We don't really struggle with a whole lot of things. But do you see the effects right away? Because you said two months in, it made a difference. I did, well, I did, yeah. Actually, I was, um, when I started, I was a really vegan junk food 
addict. I lived on sugar. If they had had food pyramids back in the day, my bottom of my pyramid would, would have been sugar, and on top of that would have been chocolate, and on top of that would have been coffee, and that was it. This was, while I was already plant-based, this was a huge switch for me. I mean, I'm buying things like rutabagas, which I thought you fed to horses, kale, which I thought was the garnish on the salad bar. It was so bizarre to me, and um, I was cooking out of Micho's book, and I remember my husband, not my husband then, said, you know, you really should go to a counselor to get advice. And I thought, no, I could do that. I'll do this on my own. I'm a chef. I can do this. And it was very hard. The food was horrible at first until I realized that it was really my taste buds, not the food. And so there was a lot of days, you know, leaning on my elbow, stirring a pot of soup because I didn't have the strength to do anything else. You know, it was, it was a lot of, I mean, I tell it almost clinically now because I, I barely remember that girl from 36 years ago. I was struggling with my weight. I mean, I lost a lot of weight when I started macrobiotics, but I was heavy before because I lived on sugar. And so it was kind of like, it's kind of like hard to even go back to what it felt like. I can tell you the day I was diagnosed like yesterday. I remember the doctor telling me what I had and it not quite sinking in and getting outside and walking into this beautiful spring day and thinking what was wrong with everybody. My world was falling apart and they were going around like nothing was wrong. But of course nothing was wrong for them. So it was this very surreal sort of 24 hours before I met Robert and, and he said, you know, you could do this yourself. And I thought, well, you're cute, but you're nuts, but what the hell, let's give it a go. And I hated the food at first. And uh, then my taste buds changed and my diet was very rigid. I went without flour, oil, or sugar for two years. I went without fruit for two years. And not because I had to, but... Sort of like when I got well, I thought, okay, I'm not going to bring these foods back in that clearly made me sick, although I knew nothing, nothing about macrobiotics except what I had read and cooked by. That's when I decided to study and figure out what was going on. Like, how did this work? It was like not a miracle. What happened here? Well, sugar is pretty addictive, right? Oh, man. (laughs) You know, I've never done heroin, but I imagine... Uh, because my withdrawal from sugar was so intense that it, it was it was awful. It was like getting off a drug. Do you eat any sugar now? You know, now I use coconut sugar and brown rice syrup and desserts. Still adore sweet taste. I still adore dessert. I love desserts. I make better quality ones, of course. I don't eat them every minute of every day. I do allow myself three bites of dessert every single day. So it's either one cookie, a sliver of this, because I discovered in all my studies that you really don't taste sugar after three bites. I don't deprive myself at all. I did for probably 10 years. And then I was like, you know what, I don't want to grimly endure my life. I want to want to enjoy my life. I, I love how I cook. I love this food. I love celebrating. It, about 10 years, though, I was really like a monk. That is really good to know. So if I just take three bites of something bites. sweet, I won't become addicted but I still will enjoy it. You won't become addicted, it. and you also will never crave it because you never feel deprived, right? Particularly women. Women crave sweet taste because inside women are more young, more tight, more contracted, so sweets relax us and make us happy. Like for a woman to crave, to deny herself that is to deny our very sort of nature. That's interesting, but I'm sure the size of the bite matters too. Well, oh, it does. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> You can't take like a, you know, a ladle full 
of gelato and make that your first bite. It's like three reasonable, like if you think about a high-end restaurant dessert where they serve quote-unquote small food and you get that sort of two-inch long by one-inch wide sliver of chocolate cake, that's about three bites. So you savor it. You don't gulp it down like we do in American dining. You enjoy it. And I do. I enjoy every one of those three bites because that's my thing. And it has always been my thing. And as much as you know, I trained in macrobiotics, and they were like, oh, no, no, you'll lose your sweet tooth. No, you don't. No, you do not. You do not. I mean, I didn't. I just changed the quality of it. Okay, that was the most important tip I learned today. What about coffee? Did you cut out coffee as well? I did. I, I, I did. I, shoot. And that was, uh, that was nearly as hard as sugar, but I didn't drink coffee. I always, I come from an Italian family and I always drank espresso. Even as a young person, when I started macrobiotics, I thought, well, that's, that's off the table. Why is it off the table? I heard if you have one cup, it's still good for you. I, well, I found out that it is. You know, I found out that the coffee cannot do the damage that we were told it does. And I think one of the reasons it was, it, it's taken away when someone is using their diet therapeutically is that it's very dehydrating. So for every cup of coffee, you should have two glasses of water. And what happens is if you're drinking a lot of caffeinated coffee, it overworks your adrenals, which then put adrenaline into your bloodstream. The kidneys have to clean that out, and so the kidneys become tired. And when someone comes to macrobiotics and they're sick, we want their energy to be focused on getting well and managing the disease, not compensating for the fact that I had three cups of coffee today. In the last 15 years... I drink espresso three times a week. I don't crave it like I used to, but I love it. I I love it. It is the one thing more than sugar that I have to tell myself every day, today's not a coffee day, and just move on. Move through my day. Just get over it. So if I have a double espresso drink, that means I have to drink four glasses of water? (laughs) Well, not espresso. Espresso, interestingly, because Italians also only serve, you know, a real espresso is about an inch in in a small cup. And it's the least amount of caffeine because it's the darkest roast, which is why it tastes so strong. So if you're going to drink a double espresso, you're probably good with a glass of water. And if you're in Italy, when you drink a cup of espresso, they always serve it with a glass of water. Now that's really good to know. Espresso is the best coffee to drink if you're going to drink coffee. Just what I needed. <laughs> Some incentive, right? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I do love it. I have to say it's, it's oh, God. It's such a great treat. I mean, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't, you know. Coffee is really my vice, I have to be honest. There are other people like you who claim that a macrobiotic diet has helped them to heal from trauma or cancer in their body. Why do you think the macrobiotic diet has this healing ability? There's two things that happen. Most people who come to macrobiotics come from a standard American diet. What happens in the first, I would say, three months of practicing macrobiotics, if you're doing it accurately according to principles, according to what a counselor may tell you or what or a book, you start to improve your blood quality by what you stop doing. It wouldn't matter if you didn't eat one grain of brown rice or one bite of miso soup, but you stop all the stuff that changed your intestinal pH to acidic and you start to get better. When the body is acidic, you are a better host to disease. When the intestinal pH is more alkaline, slightly alkaline, you're inhospitable to disease. If the time is there for you to change your body's pH, which happens within the first two months, you have a really good shot at changing your wellness and changing your path of your illness and getting better. Now, sometimes 
people just run out of time. They come to it too late. They don't really want to do it. Your attitude plays, of course, a huge role. My mother passed away at 49 of colon cancer, and I think one of the key factors to her dying young was every day, every single day, she said, nobody beats us, I'm going to die. Looking back now, I think her attitude had a lot to do with it, but I didn't know any of this, so I didn't know that I had a bad attitude until much later. What macrobiotics does physically is change your blood quality that nourishes the cells, that nourish your organs, that give the body the chance to heal itself. It moves the body into a place where it can heal. But how do you know whether you have too much acidity, non Well, you just have to assume you do. If you're eating a diet that is not plant-based, that involves processed foods, animal foods, sugar, meat, dairy, chicken, fish, butter, uh, yogurt, all the things even that we think are healthy, quote-unquote, with but they're animal-based, you can assume that your blood pH is more acidic. And, yes, you can do those little, you know, you can buy those little papers that you pee on that can tell you if you're acidic or not acidic. You could have your blood tested to see if, what your pH is. But if you're not eating a plant-based, unprocessed, whole diet cooked mostly at home, you can assume you're probably a little acidic, at least a little. And acidity in your pH leads to chronic inflammation in the body. And the more inflammation in the body, the more prone you are to disease. So we're basically sort of promoting an anti-inflammatory diet. What exactly should you eat and how do you eat it if you're on a macrobiotic diet? There's no need to be Japanese, right? You know, a lot of people assume we're the rice and seaweed diet. And, and while those are factors that we do use. One of the things we do in macrobiotics is uh, if someone, let's say someone's healthy, you know, let's, they're not trying to alter their health with food. We usually adopt uh, a more or less Mediterranean with Asian influence sort of diet, meaning we use grains like brown rice, quinoa, barley, millet as a foundation. And the reason brown rice is so popular within macrobiotics is that it has an incredible ability to help the body to alkalize and to regulate moisture in the body. So if you're dehydrated, brown rice can make you feel better. If you are too dry, brown rice can help you hold on to fluids so you feel better. It's an amazingly balancing grain. So that has become kind of the foundation. So we use rice, we use quinoa, we use millet, whole grains that are unprocessed, cooked in a pot with water, you know, two to one, three to one, whatever your health requires. And then for protein, we use beans, tofu, and tempeh, um, and lots and lots and lots of vegetables cooked in a variety of ways, pickled, raw, and so many things that were considered taboo 35 years ago when I started this no longer are. You know, we didn't eat tomatoes, we didn't eat potatoes, we didn't eat asparagus, we didn't eat artichokes, and all that has changed as our understanding of food has changed, how science has changed, and we became more within macrobiotics, more embracing of science and less embracing of myth. We give ourselves a little bit of credibility, and so many of us now have studied nutrition so that we can give people good, sound advice. And the realization came that there's not a vegetable on earth that will kill you. There are some that will aggravate certain symptoms that we might advise you to avoid for a little while, depending on your symptoms, but otherwise it's kind of like... Whatever you can find in the vegetable kingdom, you should eat. And if you like it, eat it. Greens being the queen. The greens give us everything from protein to calcium. So greens play a huge, huge part in the macrobiotic diet. We eat them three times a day in our house. I understand that there's a breakdown of how much you should eat in a variety of food groups. Can you talk about this? 
Yeah, and that's kind of old school, too. Um, it used to be they used to have a plate that your diet was 50 to 60% whole grains, 10% protein, 10% soup, you know, and the rest was veggies. And one day I was sitting with Micho Kushi, and I'm like, that's a lot of rice. Why do we have to eat so much rice? And he looked at me like I had six heads and said, you do know it's by weight, not volume, right? And I'm thinking, well, nobody told us that. So when you look at weight, half your diet, half your plate being rice, 50%, rice weighs a lot more than veggies. So when you look at it from a practical standpoint, we're about 30% grain or, or carbohydrate, 30% protein, and the rest is veggies and fat and nuts and seeds and fruit and all that. We're kind of a 30-30 with carbohydrates and protein. And we don't really limit the kinds of fat that people use as long as it's good quality. Like you want to use olive oil, use olive oil. You want to use avocado oil, use that. If your condition is good and your health is good, we don't really restrict things like oil or fruit or sweets. It's only when we're trying to use food as medicine that for a short period of time, two weeks, three weeks at the most, we might limit something that you take. Because if the diet becomes too restrictive, as when I did it, people can't do it. It's too hard. I almost killed myself. Not literally, but it was so hard. I felt like I never left the house. And it's not that way anymore. We want people to actually be able to do this. This is really good to know, because like you said, the original concept was pretty rigid. Oh, amazing. And a lot of people felt that they couldn't execute or sustain it because of the amount of effort it took. Now, when I teach, because I teach a lot, well, you know, I don't care if you break the carrot in half, just get the carrot in the pot, cook it, and eat it. That's it. I want to get the nutrition into you. And yes, the energy matters. And yes, you can alter things if you know how to manipulate energy. But if you don't, in the meantime, just start cooking. What happens is, I've seen it happen so many times with people, as you cook well, you're, it's almost like, I have to, I'm thinking of the best way to describe this is like a veil gets lifted and suddenly your intuition cooks in and you know what you need. You look, open the pantry and go, yep, today it's quinoa. Uh, just, I think I need that protein and you, and you know how to cook. But in order to get that intuition, you have to actually begin cooking. And for that, I think people need to understand that you cannot make a mistake. You cannot do this wrong. If you cut out junk, and you cut out all, if most if not all, animal food, you can't screw this up. You just can't. Every culture ate locally, close to the land, unprocessed food for millennia. So we should clarify that Michio Kushi is yeah. the founder of Macrobiotic Diet. And what you have done, you have evolved the concept, and you've yeah. taken the best of the original concept. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, the theory is ancient wisdom, and that doesn't really change. It's the application. And I remember very early on in my practice, I had gotten well, and I was studying with Micho Kushi at the Kushi Institute, and um, it, was, it, was, uh, it was grim. You know, studying cooking was, like, not joyful, and I come from an Italian family where cooking in the kitchen, they were singing and telling stories and laughing, and one day I went up to Micho and I said, so I have a question, and he always laughed because he said I was very direct. And I said, Micho, if this is supposed to be so great, this means a great life. Why is it such a drag, man? I mean, are you kidding me? And he said, please, study well and teach happy. I'm like, well, great, but that doesn't help me studying, but okay. 
And for a while in my early teaching career, they, my nickname was the party teacher. Oh, she's the party teacher. She makes everything, you know, everything is funny. She doesn't take it seriously enough. But if you're healthy and robust and this food is nourishing the purpose of your life, you better be flipping happy. So the most important elements then that you're applying that mm-hmm. has to be essential mm-hmm. are the whole grains, unprocessed food, yeah, and green veggies. Yeah, all veggies, but greens are super important because of their nutrient density. I was watching a video with Dr. Robert Lustig the other day out of Berkeley, and he's um, an endocrinologist who maintains the theory that after World War II, we took a very wrong turn. We said fat was bad and sugar was okay, and we should have said fat is okay, sugar is bad. And he said something in this lecture I watched with him that was, to me, mind-blowing. He said, if you're picking up a food that has a, a food label, consider it a warning label, meaning buy food that's unprocessed and whole, not in a package. And, yes, sometimes we have to buy packaged grains, but what he meant was, in general, you should buy things that are the least amount of processing, the least amount of um, stuff done to it. You know, it's not more expensive to eat a healthy diet. Um, it just takes you have more to work time. a little bit harder because you have to cook it, too. You have to prepare it. It's interesting that you, you say this because that was my issue with plant-based burgers. It's highly yeah. processed, right? Yeah. The high in sodium, high in fat, and tastes yeah. great, and it's great for the planet. But it's not clear to me that it's really that healthy for you. Yeah, but are they really great for the planet? I mean, I had this this debate with a vegan chef friend of mine, like, are they really great for the planet? All that processing, all that pea protein that people are being forced to grow, all these peas now and becoming monocultures because all they grow is peas for pea protein and all these weird additives that are in these and, you know, whatever the veggie burger of the day is. I don't know that they're better for the planet. Anything highly processed has a huge footprint. I mean, there's a, there's a burger brand that I have used that's all grains and beans held together with, you know, I don't know what, oats, I think. We used to use those when I don't make them on my own. But I think the mistake that we make as a culture, we turn, try to turn healthy food into a, a sort of a symbolic version of what we used to eat. Or we want to make a veggie burger that tastes just like meat. Well, if I'm giving up meat, why would I want something that tastes like meat? And yes, you might say it's a transition food for somebody, but is it? Your thinking never changes. You, you don't ever get to the place where your body celebrates grains and beans and vegetables. They, you're always looking for the thing that tastes like lasagna. Well, tofu lasagna will never taste like lasagna. I think we're trapped in this sort of catch-22. We want to eat better. We want to feel better, but we really don't want to give up what we love. And, and that's the diet culture of America since the dawn of diets. And I also think that convenience is so important to people. So important, yeah. That they can't imagine spending more than 20 minutes cooking the food, which means that you're then more likely to reach for a more processed type of food. Right. Conveniences like uh, um, Instapots. We have slow cookers, you know, things that you can put something together, you know, eat in the morning that has grains and vegetables and beans, almost like a chili, and then that night come home, boil some kale or collard greens or bok choy, and you have dinner. It's not something you should do every single night. We should embrace the celebration of cooking. And the catch-22 of cooking is, at first, it's a slow process because you're not used to it. You're not good at it. You didn't do all that chopping before, and now I have to chop everything. 
And then, but as you do it, you get faster and better and more efficient, and suddenly dinner's on the table in 30 minutes, 35 minutes. You cook one big pot of rice twice a week or what grain you like, make two different kinds of soup and put them in the freezer so that you have them. You know, there are ways that you can shorten the process in the beginning so that you start to feel better more quickly because the more quickly you feel better, the more committed you are to cooking. Clean, you know, now's the time to start embracing healthier food, really healthier food, and start cooking before we're all back out in the world again in a big way. So what you're saying is that it's okay to freeze the food. Oh, my God, yes. And you don't have to make it fresh on the spot. Well, if you are struggling with a health threat, life-threatening condition, you really want to cook fresh as much as possible or have someone helping you cook fresh if you're not strong. But your day-to-day, I just want to be macrobiotic because I want to feel better, make a lighter footprint, understand how food works in the body and serve the purpose of my life, yeah. Make three kinds of soup on a Sunday or whatever day you cook. Throw them in the freezer so in, you know, portion containers so you're not always eating the same soup. Add the miso when you reheat it. Uh, cook rice for a couple days. I mean, the thing that I'm sort of hardcore about is if you're having greens, they take so little time to cook, they should be fresh every time because greens are delicate. You cook them, they sit, they start to lose their energy pretty quickly over time. Yes, and the American Institute for Cancer Research does point out that most diets are missing the phytochemicals in plant-based foods. Yeah, and that's why yeah, they are. it's increasing the risk of cancer. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. When I started, my condition is considered yin, expansive, because it's a system. It was my whole bloodstream, like your whole lymph system. And so I wasn't eating anything that was raw or sweet or, right, because I needed to bring my body back to sort of center. So I ate longer cooked, more grains, more vegetables that were long cooked, roasted in the oven kind of thing. It really becomes a much more intuitive process. So for me, it's the easiest thing to do and the hardest thing to teach. There's some concern that macrobiotic diet may not provide adequate intake of B12, iron. It doesn't. So, and then second is iron, third is omega-3, fatty right. acids, zinc, and vitamin D. How would you address these shortcomings? Things like iron and uh, B12 was the first one. So B12, there, there is a myth that runs around the vegan community and was in the macrobiotic community for years that you could get B12 from tempeh, uh, nutritional yeast, you know, all these fermented foods. And while B12 exists in them, it's a B12 analog. The body doesn't absorb it well. And if you choose to be vegan, you must supplement B12, period. But I had a long conversation not long ago with Neil Barnard from Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, and he's of the mind that every single person should be supplementing B12 because it doesn't exist in the animal food if we eat it as it did before. So B12, you have to supplement. It's just the, just the way it is. And it's the same thing with D. Unless you're living in San Diego or Miami, Florida, and you're outside in the sun all day, you're probably not getting enough. So we have pollution. We don't get a lot of sun in most parts of the country. So I think that vitamin D3 is something we also have to take as a supplement because if we think we're getting it in milk, it's enriched. So they added a vitamin to it. So just take the vitamin. You don't need the milk. Take the vitamin. Iron we get from greens, beets, beet tops. Um, unless you're anemic, you really shouldn't need to supplement iron. 
And and omega-3s we get from chia, hemp, flax, all of which are seeds that are commonly used in modern macrobiotics. Not so much old school, but in modern macrobiotics we use all those seeds that give the body omega-3s. And zinc? Oh, zinc. Yeah, zinc we get from lots of foods, nuts, seeds, pumpkin seeds, pumpkin itself. Um, And if someone's deficient, we take a zinc supplement for short periods of time. And you can tell if you have a zinc uh, deficiency if you have white spots in your nails. Your nails take six months to grow from the base to the tip. And wherever that, you know, spot appears is when the deficiency was there. So, like, if it's in the middle of your nail three months ago, you had a zinc deficiency, which is usually caused by an excessive sugar intake. You back off sugar, you're less likely to be deficient in zinc, but you can always supplement that, too. Every supplement we take, except B12, is sort of temporary. You take it for a while, then you stop, and then, you know, you take it again. Uh, What would be the difference that you want people to make every day in how they eat? So, one is... If people make no other change, if they listen to this today, oh, well, she's funny, but she's nuts, they should eat more vegetables. If they change nothing else, eat more vegetables. And I don't mean just a salad. Eat more vegetables. Buy a vegetable you never saw before. Look up on the Internet how to cook it and make a vegetable. Make a dish. Not just fried potatoes. Like, make a vegetable dish. And the second thing is to eat soup. Soup aids digestion, helps you to eat less, keeps you satisfied longer, and helps to balance the body thermostat, so to speak. It depends on what kind of soup. Yes, of course. A a nice homemade vegetable soup. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) Backing up to vegetables that could cause inflammation, you were saying that there's certain vegetables that you can't eat at certain times, depending on what's going on in your body. So obviously, it must trigger inflammation. Yes. So there's a vegetable group known as the nightshades, which are tomatoes, potatoes, peppers, and eggplant. And those vegetables contain an alkaloid called solanine. For some reason, this alkaloid solanine affects the joints. So if you're prone to arthritis or you have arthritis, eating those vegetables in excess can make you feel worse. If you're struggling with your health, we kind of minimize them for the same reason. They make your body work too hard if you're already ill. But if you're healthy, you know, if you look at the cultures that eat those foods, Italians roast peppers and take the skin off because the skin is where the solanine is. They roast potatoes with rosemary because the rosemary neutralizes the solanine. They salt eggplant before they cook it because it pulls the acid out. Uh, Tomatoes, unlike America, are not picked from the vine and eaten like an apple. If they're not a cherry tomato, Italians marinate them in oil and vinegar and throw the marinade away before they serve the tomato so it doesn't give you what my grandmother used to call agita, which is bad digestion. They knew how to sort of process these fruits, for lack of a better word, to make them digestible so that they could get the nutrients that were in those veggies get help. So you cook them or you blanch and peel them or you marinate them so that you can, your body can accommodate them without sacrifice. Wrapping up, the five tips would be not to eat processed food. That's number one. Eat a lot of veggies. Yep. Eat brown rice if you're going to eat a grain. And half soup if you can. Yep. And get rid of sugar. Sugar's got to be at the top of that processed food list. Sugar is literally killing us. It's in everything, almost everything you eat, right? It's in almost everything we eat. It's brutal. It's, it's, such a, it's such a tough food to get rid of. It's such a tough ingredient to work your way around all the, unless you are making all your own food. Well, I appreciate all this great advice. Thank you for joining me on Spark today. Oh, thanks for having me.